Hello and welcome to this episode of the LDS PMA podcast, Voices of Light. I'm your host, Ted Finch. Today, we'll be visiting with Steve Parasanti. Stephen Parasanti is the founder of Barrett Kohler Publishers, Inc., a leading independent publisher of progressive books on current affairs, personal growth, business and management, leadership, project management, training, healthcare management, and other topics. Steve recently stepped down as president and CEO of Barrett Kohler Publishers and now serves as a senior editor at Barrett Kohler. Steve also serves as a member of the board of directors of the Barrett Kohler Foundation, the Barrett Kohler Group, Inc., New Harbinger Publications, and the Latter-day Saint Publishing and Media Association, which he helped found and served as its first president. Prior to founding Barrett Kohler in 1992, Steve served as president of Jossie Bass, Inc. Publishers. He began his career at Jossie Bass in 1997 as an advertising copywriter, then served as a marketing director, editor, editorial director, and an executive vice president before becoming president. He graduated with highest honors from Brigham Young University with a bachelor's degree in university studies. While in school, he founded, published, and edited a pioneering university student scholarly journal. Steve, who grew up in Jackpot, Nevada, is a longtime active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, served a two-year volunteering church mission in Italy in 1972 to 1974, and has served in many lay leadership positions in congregations where he has resided. Steve and his wife, Kate, are the parents of two children, Gabrielle and Joshua, and have lived in the Bay Area since 1997. Well, Steve, I just wanted to welcome you uh, to our episode today and say thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for uh, our listeners to be able to hear some of the insight that you have gained just throughout your life about uh, being a voice of light. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ted. I'm honored uh, to have this opportunity to share a few ideas and, and stories from my uh, life and particularly as related to publishing. That's awesome. Let's jump right in. What does it mean to you to be a voice of light? I don't think that I uh, have a definitive answer to that. It's something that, like uh, many others, I'm continuing to learn and to discover. And, and uh, But I, I would say for me, some important considerations are to focus one's life on service over self-interest or a service over privilege, to, to um, seek to bring good, bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to people all over the world, uh, to view all people as children of God, deserving all of the blessings of being children of God. And in my case, it means using the opportunities, the, the privileges have been given me in the book publishing world and to share truths, to share wisdom, to share practical ideas that will help people live their lives and, and make a difference in the world. That's great. Thank you so much. Let's, let's talk about some of those opportunities. Tell us a little bit about why and when and maybe how you got into publishing and over that experience, how has your career and your experience, how did that kind of just evolve to get you maybe to where you are now? I got into publishing while I was a student at Brigham Young University. Like many other students, I wasn't really clear on what I wanted to do after I graduated. I kept changing my major. I was really somewhat at sea in, in terms of figuring out what was I going to do after I graduated. And then I was in the honors program at BYU and I attended an honors program colloquium that turned out to be a gripe session about why there was not more student scholarship. So I sat there and I thought, well, why do faculty members have scholarship? Well, it's publish or perish. They do scholarship in, in order uh, be, because of the important of publishing. And so I thought, you know, maybe if we had a student scholarly journal 
to encourage publishing by students, there would be greater student scholarship. And I got hold of this idea and started talking to other people about it. I managed to get the student government to provide some funding to start a student scholarly journal, got the administration to give it the administration's blessing. This was back when Dallin Oaks was president of BYU and Robert K. Thomas was the academic vice president. Pretty amazing that they gave it a green light to proceed with this student scholarly journal and got the English department to provide housing for an office for this student scholarly journal. And they appointed Don Norton as being the faculty advisor to it. So we gathered, we advertised in the Daily Universe that we were starting this. We were looking for volunteers to serve as a staff. We had a lot of uh, people volunteer. We ended up having a volunteer staff of about 20 students. We named the Student Scholarly Journal Century Two, a BYU Student Scholarly Journal, because that was just at that point in time, 1975, 1976, BYU was celebrating its 100th anniversary. So we brought together our volunteers and we worked uh, all summer long putting together the first issue. We decided, people were asking, well, this is nice that you're going to do the Student Scholarly Journal, but who's ever going to read it? It was different from a, a lot of campuses had literary magazines, but this was designed to cover all areas, uh, science, history, social science, philosophy, all areas of the curriculum, even math. The question was, who, who's ever going to read it? So we, we made it a, a collaboration with the art department. At BYU had a tremendous student artists. They illustrated it lavishly. We made it for color. We tried to make it as, as visually attractive as possible. Of course, that meant that it was much more complex to produce it, to uh, uh, design it and produce the issues. So we, we worked all, all summer long on the first issue and it came out on time on, in September of 1976. We made one huge mistake and that mistake was that we made it a monthly and it was like a magazine. It was like a, a richly illustrated magazine. The, in the very first issue, one of the people who was involved in our staff creating Century 2 was Garrett Gong, the current apostle. He had an article in the very first issue. But it was so much work putting together this monthly magazine. We, we should have made it a quarterly, but it was so much work that we got the first issue out and then, oh, we've got another issue that is due now a few weeks later. And so I had to drop all my classes. This was a full-time job uh, creating this student scholarly magazine. I dropped all my classes and we managed to bring out the next issue in October, the next one in November, the next one in December. I was, I was working full-time on this student scholarly magazine, leading it. And then January came and same thing. There was just far too much work to, to carry on my student load. And so I had to drop all my classes again in the spring semester. And then after I had dropped all my classes, I got a notice from BYU that I had violated the terms of my scholarship. I had a very good scholarship at BYU, but two semesters in a row, I had not been enrolled in school. And so I lost my scholarship. I protested, wait a second, I'm doing this uh, scholarly project. I'm learning more than I did in any class I ever took how can you remove my scholarship? But the answer was, sorry, it, you know, those were the rules. You didn't follow them. Fortunately, at that time, I had taken an, enough classes that I was actually pretty close to graduating. So I, um, I managed to, to get credit from the English department for a university scholar project, eight hours of credit. Plus I took some independent study classes and that was enough for me to graduate. 
But I realized, you know, not only am I learning more from this experience than anything I've ever studied, I'm also having more fun than anything I've ever done. Maybe I ought to go into publishing. And that's how I decided to go into publishing. Now, the objective of Century Two was to uh, advance student scholarship. I'm not sure how much it actually advanced student scholarship, but what it did do was it launched quite a few people into publishing careers, maybe 10 or 20 that ended up working in either book publishing or they worked for the Ensign or New Era for church publications or the church publishing areas. And so that was its ultimate effect was launching careers in publishing, including mine. And that was how I decided to, to get into publishing. I, I then after this first year of running Century Two, the the uh, the leadership transitioned to another group of leaders of it, and I started looking for jobs in publishing. I applied for jobs along the West Coast and mainly in the Los Angeles area and and San Francisco area and and other places in the West, and ended up getting a couple of offers and took a, a job in San Francisco with uh, Josie Bess Publishers as a promotional copywriter. And moved there and started the job in November of uh, 1977. What I love about that story, Steve, is a lot of times when you know when we're looking at our own journeys to be a voice of light, when we look back, we start to recognize patterns and different moments where the Lord provides us opportunities that start to set a pattern and prepare us for other things to come. And and hearing you talk about your experience with that student magazine, I can see, you know, having talked to you about other experiences in your life, how that set a pattern for other things that would happen, including the forming of LDS PMA, which we'll get to here in a little bit. Um, exactly. You, you're absolutely right. It, it was uh, it was an example of, of a pattern that I've experienced. Steve, I'm going to ask you another question. What, over your career in publishing, what contributions have you made during your career that could be viewed as being a voice of light? Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history of, of how my career evolved. I started out as an, a promotional copywriter, an advertising copywriter, promoting books at Josie Best Publishers in San Francisco, and then became marketing director, subsequently became an editor, and then became editorial director, and then executive vice president in uh, 1989 when Josie Bass was sold by its original founder to a media conglomerate, I became president and CEO. Obviously, it's still pretty young then. At, at that point, I was just about 12 years out of college. But my managerial career, my leadership career there at Josie Bass advanced pretty quickly. And the most important influence on my leadership style by far was Doctrine and Covenants section 121 verses uh, 39 through about 45, where it talks about no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood only by persuasion, by long suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Uh, let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly, and then shall thy confidence wax strong. Verse 46, and without compulsory means, it shall flow into thee forever and ever. The example I had then of a leader 
the founder and president of, of Josie Bass during this time was a, a somewhat typical autocratic founder who was very controlling of the company and really was not a good model for me as a leader of someone for me to be learning from as I was rising through the ranks. He was so controlling that when I got there to the company, at this point, when I got there, there was a small company with about 14 or 15 employees. All the mail came to him and he opened the mail. I mean, everybody's mail, not, not just you know his own mail, but the mail of all employees. He opened the mail and you would get your mail with notes from him on it, expressing how he thought something ought to be handled. Just extremely controlling, micromanaging, also had a ferocious temper and uh, later on would fall into bouts of being drunk and, and late at night calling you with being very upset about something that was going on, some particular employee and and would call me as I was a manager and and just profanely lash out at different people. It was a terrible example, but I was following instead what I had learned from Doctrine and Covenant Section 121 in terms of um, how management leadership ought to work. So I went from being, when I first came to Josie Bass, I was kind of the young golden boy as this fresh young talent. And as time went on, I went from being kind of this favored young employee to being one of Alan Josie Bass's chief critics. Uh, Alan Josie Bass was the name of the founder. He, he's not alive anymore. He passed away quite a few years ago. But I became one of his chief critics inside. The other employees, some of them, were so afraid of him, of his temper, and him being so dictatorial that they didn't really stand up to him. And I became the, the chief person standing up to him saying, no, we can't treat people like that. No, we can't act like that. And the, the interesting thing is that the more I became Alan's chief critic within the company, the more responsibility he gave me because ultimately I was the one that he could trust, that I, I wasn't just going to tell him yes or what you wanted to hear. I, I was actually going to, to give him real advice and take real stands. And so I was eventually the one that became executive vice president while he was still in charge and then was appointed to be the president CEO when, uh, when he sold the, the company. And so it was really, I'm focusing on Dr. Cummins 121, but it's really, you know, all, the whole model I've viewed of how leadership is carried out within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in that there it's done without compulsion, as Dr. Covenant Section 121 said, without compulsory means and with uh, kindness and pure knowledge and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness and without hypocrisy, without guile. Those were the things that I tried to do. And, and of course, I never did them perfectly, but it provided the pattern or the, the template for how I've tried my whole career as a, as a leader, as a manager to exercise that leadership. Steve, I love that. Not only is that a great lesson on, on leadership, it's also a great example of an easy way that we can all be voices of light regardless of you know what way creatively we might be trying to do that. We all go out into the world. We all have jobs or areas of influence to where we can be a leader in some way and be a voice of light that way through our actions. So thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. You're welcome. Steve, I've heard you talk previously about just the, the impact that the church had in the early days that publishing played in being a voice of light. Would you mind talking about just the impact you think people can have with publishing and using that as a tool to be a voice of light? Yeah, so I've been in book publishing since 1977, but in book publishing itself, 
for 43 years. And I believe that I'm the most experienced Latter-day Saint in book publishing in terms of the, the just simply the length of time that I have been involved in book publishing and uh, through these 43 years. And I've always been outside of Utah, headquartered here in California. And what I've observed over these 43 years is there just aren't a very large number of Latter-day Saints in book publishing outside of Utah. The number of Latter-day Saints in book publishing is much smaller than the numbers people from other faith traditions, uh, both uh, Jewish and Christian, and for that matter, Buddhist or others, uh, even for groups that don't have any larger numbers of people in the United States. And as far as I know, there are not that many Latter-day Saints in book publishing outside of the United States either. It's much less than the number of Latter-day Saints in many, many other professions and careers. I've always thought that that was an unfortunate and a huge missed opportunity to advance the work of the Lord because publishing has such an enormous impact on the spread of ideas, values, beliefs, knowledge in the world. And Latter-day Saints have great potential for contributions because of our deep grounding in learning and reading and writing and speaking organizing, leadership, as I was just talking about, that we have so much to contribute to the world through publishing that, that I've always viewed it was a tremendous missed opportunity that more Latter-day Saints didn't go into publishing. And then the, the actual heritage of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has always been extensively connected to publishing, starting with the fact the church was launched with the publication of a book, uh, the Book of Mormon, to the fact that one of the first major assets of the church was a printing press, and the fact that ever since 1830, the church has published and distributed publications in every location where it was established. That's been the norm. And so it never made any sense to me that more Latter-day Saints didn't go into publishing careers, and they didn't connect more with each other. And that's what, it was that underlying observation that led me to be interested in, in founding the Latter Saint Publishing and Media Association. That's a great segue right there. So why don't we jump into that and talk a little bit about, you know, how, when and how you got the idea to start Latter Day Saint Publishing and Media Association. And then maybe how did you go about doing that? Yeah, so I've been thinking about the need for some way to encourage more Latter-day Saints to go into publishing and to, and to support each other, to connect with each other. been thinking about that for quite a few years. And then in 2014, I finally did something about it. One of my mentors was Tom Rogers, who was the former director of the BYU Honors Program when I was a student at BYU. And I'd stayed in touch with him and his wife, Miriam Rogers, in Bountiful, Utah. And we would occasionally have get-togethers at his home when I would visit Utah once a year or so and, and just invite different people to come and, and have discussions at his home. And so in this annual get-together that we had on April 7th, we decided to make the focus of it around the following question, how can Latter-day Saints involved in publishing, whether as writers, editors, producers, marketers, or in other functions, and whether with books, journals, newspapers, magazines, blogs, or other media, make a greater positive difference in the world? So we convened about 15 people at his home to talk about that 
and had a, a marvelous discussion. These were people that he knew and I knew that we thought would be interested in this topic. And we had a marvelous and stimulating discussion, and it led to many other discussions, mostly by email. And what emerged out of that meeting was the idea of forming an association of Latter-day Saints involved in publishing. So I determined to, to take action on that. The best way to do so would be to send a survey to an initial group of people who might be interested in such an association. So I created a survey, sent it out in September 2014 with the help of various other people involved in our discussions. It went out to a few hundred Latter-day Saints. And we had a wonderful response to it. About 90-some people responded. And out of those responses, it was kind of the initial group that became the, the founding group of support. We then convened on April 3rd, 2015, at the Salt Lake City Library, the organizing meeting for what at the time was called, well, actually, we, we didn't have a name for it at the time, but it would become the Latter-day Saint Publishing Professionals Association. That's a, a great segue into one of the next questions I have for you. The conversation started in, in 2014. We're now in, you know, getting into the tail end of 2020. How has, I mean, you mentioned a little bit the original name and it's now shifted to LDS PMA. Maybe talk about how over the years, how the organization has evolved and grown. Yeah. In that first meeting, we decided to move ahead with organizing this association. We created a board of directors. We created committees. We decided that we were going to hold an annual conference. And in fact, the first annual conference took place just a few months later, August 21st, 2015, at the Provo City Library. And we've been doing annual conferences since then. I was the original elected president, and various other people were involved in that first group. Devin Jensen, who's the current president, was one of the original founding members. Aaron Wilder, who's the current vice president, was one of the founding members. Her original position was director of student outreach. Susie Bills, who was the previous president before Devon, was one of the founders. And so a lot of the original group took on various leadership roles in launching this organization. And I stayed on as president for a couple of years and then stepped down. And Susie Bills took over as the new president. Then Mariana Richardson was president. And then Devin Jensen was president. So th three others after me. And when I stepped down as president, I continued on in a new capacity as director of the annual conference. And so I'm still involved in that role as director of the conference. In terms of how we transitioned from being the Latter-day Saint Publishing Professionals Association to the Latter-day Saint Publishing and Media Association, there were several reasons for that. One was that we wanted to make the name of the organization more welcoming to people in media roles who might not identify themselves as publishing professionals. A second reason is that the word professional was overly restricting organizational membership because many writers, students, and others who might be interested in the association and benefit from it do not call themselves necessarily professionals. And we especially wanted to bring in students and, and others who were aspiring to, to have careers in publishing as, as well as writers. And so the name, we wanted to be more welcoming to them. And I guess the third reason is that at this point in time, over the last five to 10 years, many publishing companies, including book publishing companies, 
are racing as fast as they can to become media companies. So putting media in the name actually increases the appeal of the association to many people in traditional publishing roles. You might think that saying the Latter Saint Publishing and Media Association makes it less appealing to people in publishing. Not so. It actually makes it more appealing because many or most publishing companies are striving to become media companies as well. For example, Barrett Kohler Publishers, the company I founded, where I currently serve as a senior editor about 15 years ago, started publishing everything in digital formats, multiple digital formats, as well as in print. And you know, five or six years ago, we started bringing out our books in audio formats, as well as, as in print and digital. And we're also producing online conferences. We're also also producing video training programs. And we're, we're really much beyond just publishing traditional print books. And this is common among the publishers today. So the, the worlds are really merging. It's interesting to watch things evolve over time. And I, I love how inclusive the organization is trying to reach a lot of people, but also reaching them where they're at and helping them get to where they want to be. One thing I'm really curious about is we've talked about your journey and just trying to be a voice of light. Since we've been talking about LDSPMA, what do you hope LDSPMA will be able to do to accomplish its mission to be a voice of light? Well, our objectives are to encourage a lot more people to go into publishing careers and to finding different ways to bring light through publishing to greater numbers of people around the world. The Latter-day Saints will go into publishing careers, whether in editorial roles or sales and marketing roles or design and production roles or executive roles or just entrepreneurial and founding organizations that they will have more success in their careers, that uh, Latter-day Saints writers will learn what it takes to make books successful in this time uh, when the, the marketplace is changing rapidly, when it's become harder than ever before to have books actually sell and succeed in the marketplace. So it's just encouraging more people to go into such work and such careers and helping them connect with each other so that they have people who they can go to with questions, who can share leads with them, bring opportunities to their attention, and then having them be more effective, more successful, more productive, and find new ways to bring light into the world through this work that they're doing. Thank you for that. I'm new to LDSPMA, and I have to say I absolutely love it. It feels like home for me. I've been looking for something like this for a long time. And that's because I think it's really in the DNA of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that we are such a culture of people of writing, reading, publishing, learning. And so for me, the fact that so few Latter-day Saints were really in professional publishing roles was it was inexplicable. And I think maybe it, it has something to do with just geography in the sense of the primary areas of publishing have been in New York city especially and boston and a few places like that and then san francisco and they're just we're not large latter saint communities in those areas so i think it's somewhat geography there's people talking in utah about it becoming a tech mecca of it becoming a you know like a place where there's a, a lot of high technology companies silicon slopes and so on and that and to some extent that's happening but there's no reason why utah and uh, can is just as much become a publishing mechanism. 
not just for publishing of books aimed at Latter-day Saints, but really a publishing mecca for bringing works of light, publications of great worth for the whole world. The LDSPMA is trying to connect Latter-day Saints all over the world who are involved in publishing and media. So in our last conference, we had people uh, participating as speakers from Africa, from Taiwan, from Egypt, from different places. There's a tremendous potential. We've only scratched the surface. I would agree. Years and years ago, my wife and I joked that we should start our own publishing company because I had been in the poetry class. One of the final projects is you had to print and bind a book of the poems. And I had a brother-in-law who has a printing company. So, you know, we made the cover, we bound everything and we're like, oh, what should we put for the publisher? And so we're like, okay. So we came up with a fun little name, put it on there just so it looked like it had come from a publisher. We've always joked and gone back to yeah, we should do that. And every once in a while, I'm like, you know, that would be kind of fun. Because for me, I like I love helping people get their voice out. So I think you're right about maybe there is something in the DNA. That kind of leads me to another question. For people who, whether, you know, our listeners, whether they are currently a member of LDSPMA, and if you're listening and you're not, I highly encourage you to become one. For those who aren't, how do they get involved or how can they contribute or what can they do to support LDSPMA? Well, it's a volunteer-staffed and led organization. The board of directors are all volunteers. We have various committees, a marketing committee, a conference committee, and all of them are staffed by volunteers. The paid part of it is only a small sliver of part-time paid operations manager, but we really need more volunteers. Uh, currently, as we speak, I just heard yesterday from the director of marketing for LDSP May, who is seeking more people who could help out in marketing, publicity, public relations, social media, different areas like that in a a few months, we'll be starting into a couple of months, we'll be starting into working on our 2021 annual conference, and we'll need volunteers to help with, with that. So we're constantly needing volunteers. If you're interested, go to the LDSPMA.org, our website, and there there's actually a place where you can volunteer. You can enter your information that you would like to help out. And we really need more volunteers. Also, membership is free, so people can join. They, again, go to the website, ldspma.org, and they can join and, and then receive information that is sent out periodically to members. And then the, the third way is just simply to participate in programs. And again, by becoming a member, then you start learning about all the programs. And I would say you know, once you're a member, there's some great Facebook groups that are out there to be able to jump in and just chime in based on kind of what your interest is. It's nice just to have that community that you can reach out to. And I actually just did that yesterday for a chapter that I'm working on in a novel, you know, fantasy. And I'm, I've never been a huge fan of world building, but that's the feedback I keep getting. And how to get that in there in a way that's beneficial to readers. Because of where I'm at, I'm like, man, I don't know what to do. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to reach out to that group. I know there are some people who've done a lot more. So I'm excited to see what feedback comes. There are some great resources to, to get involved with. Definitely help volunteer uh, for the conference. Having run a couple conferences myself, volunteers are so beneficial and so needed. This brings us to kind of just a couple of other questions I have. Steve, this has been a great interview. And I, th I thank you so much. Uh, you hinted at this a little bit, but I'm asking everyone this question of, on your journey to share your light, who have been mentors to you to help you kind of along that journey? 
Yeah, you know, I think one interesting answer I would provide to that is Hugh Nibley. I discovered the writings of Hugh Nibley while I was actually on my mission in Italy uh, with a book called uh, Since Camorra uh, that was given to me as a gift. I've read many of his books and followed many of his writings, but what he introduced me to was a more scholarly approach with documentation of sources, of drawing on many different sources. It was just a, a more uh, scholarly, deep research way of approaching a field. And so that inspired me, uh, as well as just what he wrote in terms of approaching topics within the church. Later on, I, I followed the formation by Jack Welch of FARMS, the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies, uh, which later on became the Maxwell Institute at BYU, and just seeing how he saw a need and created an organization to fill it. And so, you know, that idea that, that you can, you know, identify here's something that could help move things forward in the world, and you have the potential to do something that will make that happen uh, was inspiring to me. So I would mention two of them as being mentors. That's great. I think those are, are two wonderful examples. And I, I love one of the things that you hit on is that sometimes a mentor doesn't have to be someone we have physical interaction with and conversations. It can be someone that we see from afar looking at either the way that they're living their life or things that we're reading, things that we're watching them do. Uh, there's lessons that we can learn. There's many different ways to find a mentor. The last question I have for you is who's someone that you think our listeners need to get to know? I don't think I have just one answer to that. I think we have such a, a rich group of people who've spoken at LDSPMA that I would just encourage those who are hearing this, if they're not members of LDSPMA, to join. And because we're going to be sharing our, our conferences over the coming year, we'll be sharing some of the best presentations uh, and sessions making them available kind of one by one to members and and you can listen to those uh, and some of them just are not to be missed such as Brandon Moll's session about his career as a writer and how faith has played a central role in that and so I, I don't have any one person I, I would just say that there are many different ones and if, if you join LDSPMA you'll have opportunities to hear and connect with a lot of different people. I second that about uh, Brandon Moles. That was one that really just spoke to me when I heard it. For me, I was able to help volunteer for this last conference. And I actually got to go through and preview his as they were trying to get everything ready. And I was just blown away. So it was a great opportunity. So again, a plug for volunteers. Well, see, that brings us to the end of our interview. I thank you so much for your time that you spent with us today. And just the wisdom that you shared and giving everyone just kind of a peek into the journey that you've had to become a voice of light. Thank you, Ted. 